You're listening to the Mobcast Network. Hey. Hey. Happy, happy Sunday. And naked now. Yeah, I'm a little surprised you You're not going to have me act out that scene, are you? <laughs> you I wouldn't do that to you. I'm not sure. Can you imagine? Jada, are you fully functional? <laughs> <laughs> See, she's a professional. She has really? a memory. Let's see, let's see this. Hey, wait, now that we've got this, let's have a look at this scene. <laughs> so, I haven't seen, I haven't looked at this in 30 years. I did find the scene in there just before we I'm came. sure you did. <laughs> why, why is that not surprising? Where's this, what page are we on? Uh, it was fairly far back in it, actually. Really? Uh, I didn't know. I, didn't oh, I, I opened right to it. <laughs> <laughs> I opened right I guess I do 
have the uh, dubious distinction of uh, making it with uh, a droid. As <laughs> <laughs> I always say, every girl should have one, though. <laughs> Three speeds. <laughs> well, it wasn't my intention to start with that. That was a great way to start the thing. I am so glad you had that. Now, literally, I have not looked at that in over 30 years. So. I, I love the description though, as sultry as a Louisiana night. I don't remember. See, that's the parts that I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Your descriptive, uh, uh, you know, uh, kind of parts of the writing. Well, what, what originally got you interested in that? What, what, what really takes out as a career? Wow. Um, you know, I had a kind of. Um, well, I, my grandfather was Bing Crosby, though I didn't have any kind of relationship with him. So it was more in just uh, uh, name alone. Um, so, but my mother worked in the studios. She was a production accountant. So I was always around. As a matter of fact, she worked at Paramount when I was a child. So I would visit her on days off from school. And so I was around the business a lot. I was around, always loved movies. Um, and uh, for instance, when I was in elementary school, I, I was the kind of host and narrator of the Christmas pageant, you know? I, I remember having to memorize um, uh, the night before Christmas and you know, do it on stage and things like that. So I think all of that was the beginnings of it. But it really wasn't until um, I discovered a phenomenal acting teacher that that inspired me and got me excited about the process and about the work and about um, analyzing theater and plays and sort of sparked my imagination. So uh, you, you start out, you, I know you had a rule on Days of Our Lives, mm -hmm. but then your first big movie is 48 Hours, which is also Eddie Murphy's first big movie. Can you talk a little bit about working on that, Michelle? Wow. So, yeah, I mean, I was, um, you know, I was just, I, I had a little job in Hollywood working at a, a store, and, you know, I was going to classes and um, going out on auditions, and uh, along came this um, uh, role in, in 48 Hours. And um, it was it was great because, um, the girl, I, I don't know if you guys have seen the film, I, I sort of play this you know, rough and tumble um, uh, girlfriend of one of the bad guys, James Remar, and I live in, yeah, I share this apartment with um, my girlfriend Margot, uh, Margot Rose playing the character. And so when auditioning, you know, Margot and I were, were, were sort of put together and um, they did a lot of really cool photos of us it, it was an odd audition because I just remember going, we were like down in this funky area of Hollywood and like a, a kind of industrial park and we were just like messing around as girlfriends and they were taking stills of us because I think Walter Hill, the director, really wanted to see what it looked like, the two of us on film together. And I, it's a very unusual, um, when thinking back on it, process of getting these parts. But um, 
he cast his vote and um, went to work at, at Paramount. And Walter Hill was uh, just a, a delight. He was he was so um, he was he was so caring and kind. You know, not a screamer, not a not not you know an arrogant man. Very just smart and. Um, uh, of course, Nick Nolte was already a legend at that point, and, and really a cool guy, and very smart. And Eddie was just so full of himself. He was just, you know, right off of SNL, and had made such a huge splash. So young, yeah, he was only 21. And, you know, of course, I get to hit him with a baseball bat. He was like all, you know, worried that I was going to hurt him. And, you know, Nick was going to, Eddie, come on. She knows what she's, and I, it was, I was using a fake rubber bat. It wasn't even a real wood baseball bat. He was like, don't you hit me, don't you hit me with that. You know, and of course then I accidentally hit him, you know. I cried like a little girl. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when the chance to join the Star Trek Next Generation came up, how, much, how familiar with Star Trek were you already, and did you realize how much that was going to change? Wow. So um, when the original Star Trek was first on, um, you know, in the 60s, I was a little too young to really appreciate it. It wasn't my thing. When I got to be about 18, and it was in syndication every day, it became sort of a, um, a ritual. And at 5 o'clock, uh, my landlord, I think I was 18, my landlord would, was uh, an 82-year-old Italian immigrant, and he and I watched it together <laughs> And um, And that's the beauty of Star Trek, that, you know, it just multi-generations can experience this together. And so I had seen all of the original um, uh, by the time I, I you know, auditioned for, for the next gen. Um, I don't think any of us could have anticipated any of this. Um, you know, it had been 25 years since they had made Star Trek, and uh, this was a made-for-syndication television series that, you know, basically we thought, I don't know if this, anybody's going to watch this thing, you know, and it was met with a lot of um, hostility, actually, the, the, when the next gen, before the next gen came on the air. So it took a while, and I mean, once it started running, people quickly embraced it, but um, yeah, we couldn't, we couldn't have seen that. <coughs> now, originally you were intended to play Counselor Troy, and then when Marina was cast, they decided to switch the roles. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it, the, originally, um, I think I, I was, Originally auditioning for the, the part of uh, Counselor Tori, she was she was um, her description was uh, a lot more my kind of coloring and my, my you know this this very tall sort of Nordic looking kind of ice queen kind of thing that we're going for and. Um, I think that the role of Tasha Yar was kind of envisioned more along the lines of, um, uh, I think her name was Vasquez uh, in Alien. Oh, okay. Aliens. Um, more like kind of, you know, tough, little scrappy, um, 
fire club, you know? And um, so I think I read for Troy for about two rounds of auditions, and somewhere in the mix, Gene Roddenberry liked both of us as actresses and just said, yeah, would you mind, would you mind flipping the roles and just let me see what happens? And, and he liked it so much, that's what it became. So you come in, you, you're in the first year of the series, and you decide that it's not working out for you, and, and you get written out of the show. At that point, you think, okay, I'm done with this, and that's the end of Star Trek for me? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, um, it was like, you know, months in the making, a decision that, you know, I, I just, you know, that first season was really, as you can see, <laughs> um, it, you know, it, it, it got better. I mean, it was very tough on the writers the first season. They, they were really going through writers, having trouble finding writers, what was the show, and, you know, had a lot of cast members, and I really thought that, you know, the show was going to have multiple storylines, and we were, we were all going to, you know, be part of this, and Gene really wanted to keep with a sort of established formula that he had done in the original series, so, you know, I had to make a decision. I, I, so many episodes were going by, and I, I was just simply on the bridge going, aye, aye, Captain, you know, and I thought, oh my God, six years of this, I'm going and, you know, made the decision to leave. And Gene didn't want me to go, but he understood the frustration, and he said, I'm, I'd like to kill the character. I've never done it before, and I think it would be really um, shocking to the audience. And um, so when the character of Tasha Yar dies, I, I, I mean, I didn't ever think that that could ever, you know, come back. And I was absolutely stunned when I got the call from yesterday's Enterprise, and it was so well done. And it since has become my favorite episode. And then that opened the door for Sila to, to happen. So, you know, what a what a what a surprise all around. You're one of the few major Star Trek actors to have multiple roles too. Yeah. I, so, yeah. So, yesterday's Enterprise of Genesis was them calling you and saying, hey, we'd love you to come back to this. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and what was what was it like for you to come back into it after being gone for, I guess that was the third season? Yeah. Um, it was really, um, it, it was exciting on, on, on so many ways, you know, because it was just such a great surprise. I didn't see that coming. Um, it was redeeming in a certain way because, you know, so many of the fans were so disappointed in the way that Tasha was, was handled and her death. And I, I know that Gene, what his intentions were, that they were, uh, it, it, it was supposed to be so unprovoked that it would be just horrific that, you know, here's this character that would have done nothing and, you know, would be killed that way so randomly. But I think it was anticlimactic, you know, in, in its in its story in its storytelling. So they I got to address that in yesterday's Enterprise. And then Christopher McDonald, who played Lieutenant Castillo in, in it, um, he and I just hit it off so much so that it was just a great delight to work with him and to, you know, have this other side of Tasha um, be illustrated 
this romantic side, this, this, that the notion that she would find love in her life. And he and I, we laughed so hard making this episode that we could, we almost had to be separated. If we were in the same scene, all I'd say to him was, do not look at me. Don't look at me. I couldn't look him in the eyes because I would start to laugh and break up the scene. It was ridiculous. So what's more fun, being the hero as Tasha or being the villain as Zilla? Oh my gosh. Um, you know, what, what a gift um, for an actor to be able to play a mother and a daughter. I mean, I don't, I don't know anyone else that can really say that, you know? Um, they're both such uh, layered, deep, you know, characters that are that are so meaningful to me. I listen. I hope. I hope Sila is is still. Um, uh, there's still some stuff to do with her. I hope you know now that Patrick's going to do this new series. Maybe there's there's you know we might revisit her. Certainly on Star Trek Online. You know I was able to. Um, Again, have this this incredible story line for for Sila, and um, uh, you know she's now the Empress of Romulus at this point. You know, of course the planet's blown up, and she's trying to get her people back together. But uh, there's a lot more to explore with her. So hopefully. Well, I'm, I'm sure we can sit and talk Star Trek all day, and I'm sure we'll get some questions from the audience involved Star Trek. But you have such a varied and great career that I want to make sure we don't just focus the entire panel on on Star Trek. Uh, First of all, I think one of the things that people will remember you most for is Pet Cemetery, which is actually getting ready to have a remake come out. First of all, how do you feel about seeing a remake come out? Well, you know, they've been, this is what Hollywood does, you know, they, they do remakes. Um, it's financially sound for them to do, they own the film already, so, you know, they just, um, you know, go back and revisit it. I, there have been rumors of, of a, a Pet Cemetery remake for a long time. I'm, I'm, I always remain, you know, positive and hopeful. I, I only wish them the best. Um, I just don't know how you would ever top Fred Wynn's performance as Judd Cranville. I mean, I, I just, you know, I don't know. What's the point, really? But you know, we'll give it a, we'll give it a go. And and I've seen a little bit of the trailer, and there's some interest. There's some shots that are exactly shot the same shots we have. In, in um, our version, and um, but you know, hopefully it'll, there'll be some some surprises. So you know, we'll see. It's one of the only horror films of that era that was directed by a woman. What did you like about working with a female director on that? There you go. That's a that's a great um, uh, just, you know talk about. It. I mean, Mary Lambert, who directed Pet Cemetery, was um, you know really ahead of her time. I mean, she's she came out of the music video uh, world. She directed all of Madonna's early first videos and you know, caused quite, quite a stir with some of them. And um, you know, she was uh, lucky enough to, there weren't, I mean, I, I couldn't name any real studio film director, you know, we could barely name any now, you know, let, let alone back then. Um, so she was she was extraordinary. She and I had worked together 
on a number of things, um, music videos we've done together. She directed me in a Chris Isaac music video, in a Tom Tom Club music video, and actually Mick Jagger music video. So we had, we had um, and we became really good friends and are to this day. So um, for us, it was a delight to work together on this feature. I want to hit you with a little bit of a rapid fire. You have a number of uh, recurring roles in some iconic science fiction series besides Star Trek. So I just want to get like quick hit memories of working on them. Let's start with Lois and Clark. Oh, we were just talking about that with Kevin and Sorbo. Um, great. Uh, you know, a fun, quirky tone to it. You know, just delightful. We actually have one of Dean's costumes from Lois and Clark on display at the ground. Oh, very cool. Uh, let's talk about the X-Files. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, just cool. Chris Carter, um, so smart, so cool. Loved doing it. I was hoping that was going to go more with the, the, when the series ended. Uh, you were on what I thought was one of the best episodes of the original 1990 Flash TV series, the, the Nightshade episode. Oh, the Flash. Uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, it was, um, God, I just remember poor John Wesley Ship having to wear that suit. He was dying. He was, oh my God, I think finally they worked it out. I don't think they, they, they have so much trouble now, but, you know, again, really fun. The new series seems to really like bringing back the actors that appeared in the original series. Is there any possibility that might see I that? hope so. I should, you know, inquire about that. Yeah, I should ask my agent about that one. Let's, let's bring it up a little more current. Let's talk about The Walking Dead. Ooh. Ooh. Um, yeah, The Walking Dead was, was uh, quite um, a trip. I, I, to be honest, had never seen an episode until I got cast in it, so I binge-watched three seasons of it, and um, everybody was absolutely phenomenal. A great cast. You know, it starts with Andrew Lincoln, who's just... Um, such a love, such a kind love, and they're all terrific. It's just a delight to do. And you have the distinction of being Dexter's first victim. Uh, How do you about that? Maybe the creepiest thing I've ever done, for sure. Um, you know, to be cellophane wrapped onto a dining room table with, you know, Michael C. Hall's face right here stabbing me to death was really weird, really creepy. That entire house was saran wrapped, and I thought, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> no, this, this has gone too far. These people are weird. <laughs> um, it was it was disturbing, I gotta tell you. Usually, you know, usually, you know, you die, like even on The Walking Dead, you know, Carol shoots me and you know, she opens the door and the zombies come in. And to be honest, I started laughing. <laughs> the zombies, the zombies are like. <laughs> and they come down and they're like, <laughs> and, it, and I said, oh God, please don't make that sound. It sounds like hamsters. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> and you're, you're laughing. I was laughing. And, you know, Greg Nicotero was directing and said, Denise, they're eating you. Don't laugh. You know, scream. And I said, but they're going, <laughs> That was not it, it was scary at all. But 
when I walked down to the set of Dexter, it was really, it wasn't a set, it was, you know, a house on location. And the art department had completely covered the entire living room and dining room of this woman's house in saran wrap. And they said, um, so you've got to be naked on the dining room table wrapped up in saran wrap. What? <laughs> what? Well, you're not really naked. Here, we'll give you this little thing to put on that's flesh colored. And it'll look like na you're naked once we wrap you in the saran wrap. Are you going to be okay to lay there and not move? No, I, I guess. <laughs> so I laid on this dining room table, you know, with saran wrap. And I'm not kidding you, you know, Michael C. Hall is really a good actor. He looks like he's really gonna kill me. <laughs> and he's got this like fake knife. And it just goes, you know, boom! Right down my chest. Oh god, it was not. I just kept saying in my head, okay, you can do this, you can do this, we'll be over soon. It was really creepy. I promise I did not plan this panel to only be centered around things that put you in uncomfortable situations. <laughs> my deaths, all my deaths. Well, what do you like about working on Ray Donovan? Oh, well, what, a, what an extraordinary cast. And, um, you know, it was just such a joy to work with, you know, Elliot Gould and John Boyd. I mean, these are the guys that made the movies that made me want to become an actor, you know, when I was, was, was growing up. Um, just legendary um, films, and they're so good. Um, Ann Bitterman, who created Ray Donovan, she also, this, that was the second series I've done with her. Um, she do, created a show called Southland. That was on a great cop show, and I got to do a recurring role in that. So this was the second time we were working together, and she just, again, you know, a, a female, writing some of the hardest, badass, you know, stuff on TV. And she's just not, she just isn't afraid to go there, you know? And um, so I, she's, I, I just saw her and she's got a new idea that she's pitching, um, a limited series. And she said, you know, I've got, I've got to keep you employed because you're my good luck charm. So <laughs> I said, your lips to God's ears. <laughs> well, I would love to open up the floor to questions if you guys would like to take the microphone to ask the questions so everybody can hear that would be wonderful. And while also on the other, you mentioned something, talk a little bit about you on that show. Oh, God. So, South Lab was just um, a really amazing um, show on every level. Um, John Wells, you know, who created ER, was the executive producer. And I remember, um, so usually when you're filming, um, you go to the, you, you, uh, oftentimes the director already has it mapped out, the scene, you know? So he goes, you'll be standing over there, and then on this line, walk over there, put the thing down, and then, you know, come back. And so this is, because they're, they're blocking the camera already. This, however, you get to the set, and they said, okay, show us what you're going to do. 
You, you want me to show you? Oh yeah, well, and don't worry, we'll find you. So you're, that's how it really should be, but it's never really that way. And they, they just shot everything handheld. They, would, they didn't care if you're, you know, your back was to the camera, you weren't looking at the camera. Um, it was just a really unique sort of, and, and always the, the actors who were there as regulars, they would watch the newbies come on with this look of like, you want what? <laughs> and they would, they would just laugh because no, nobody ever works that way. So it was a really unique, unique sort of experience for Dan Southland. It's just great. Well, let's get questions from the audience. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for coming. I guess two questions. One is yesterday's Enterprise was my absolute favorite episode of Next Gen. Absolute favorite. I loved how you did your character. I think the writing was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal episode. Um, one first question is, I heard, and things may change, but I heard Quentin Tarantino's doing an R-rated Star Trek. And I heard that it was supposed to be doing something with the Yesterday's Enterprise episode. I didn't know, is there any talk about that, or is it wow. just rumor, or, cause that, that's the last I've heard on it. I didn't know if y'all knew anything about that. Um, my second question was, in the Next Gen universe, played different characters over a span of several years. I kind of didn't know what was the difference like working in the Gene Roddenberry era and then post-Gene Roddenberry era, like in the Rick Berman era. So I didn't right. kind of talk about that. Wow, good ones. So yes, I have heard that rumor about Quentin. Um, God, can you imagine? <laughs> I, I think that, okay, so I, I know Quentin a little bit. I haven't seen him in some time. But my favorite Quentin Tarantino story is I was at a Pasadena Comic-Con and um, you know I was at my signing table and there was a line and all of a sudden I look up and Quentin Tarantino is standing in my line. Now this is before Reservoir Dogs came out. It was just playing at um, the Sundance Film Festival which was just about to come up and that changed everything. So he's got my action figure, and he wants me to sign it. <laughs> and now, nobody knew who he was. I only knew about him because I had read Reservoir Dogs. The script was going around town, and every actor in Hollywood was auditioning for these roles. I mean, they were just great roles. You know, Mr. Mr. Vaughn, Mr. whatever. And every guy I knew was, was getting an audition for this. And I met him at a party, and I, he said, hi, my name's Quentin Tarantino. You were in one, you know, he's a film nerd. He said, you worked with my favorite actor, Michael Parks, in a movie called Arizona Heat. I went, you saw that? <laughs> I mean, it's not very good, but it's, you know, it, Michael Parks was, he, and, and ultimately Quentin, used Michael in a bunch of movies, in all the, you know, Kill Bill movies and stuff. And he just loves, you know, these obscure, you know, B-movie types. And um, I said, oh my god, you saw that? And he goes, yeah, I, I, I love that movie. Michael Parks is like my favorite actor. And I'm like, oh my god, you're Quentin Tarantino? I read the script you wrote. It's amazing. And he said, you did? I said, yeah, it's incredible. Because, Thank you. He was so humble. And about you know two weeks 
later, he shows up at the Comic-Con with my action figure. And I said, oh, of course I'll sign it. And he said, I'm going to put it on my mantle next to my John Travolta Saturday Night Fever doll. <laughs> and I said, oh, okay, great. Um, great. That, that, that's a place of honor. Um, and then I went to Sundance, and I saw Reservoir Dogs and the rest is history. And then I ended up working with him in Jackie Brown. I was in Jackie Brown. So I would love, you know, Quentin. I think he would, he's a, he's a, he loves Star Trek. So he would take this to another level, you know. He might shoot up the whole crew. <laughs> I, as a matter of fact, I'd be, I'd, be, I'd be disappointed if he didn't, you know, put us in a bloodbath somewhere. Um, so that could be cool, but I don't know any more than that. Um, so I think, I think the next gen really took a shift when Michael Pillar came on board and started, you know, <coughs> Uh, being the main writer and really began to make a cohesive story, storylines for the show, and I, I think it was a good, good, good choice. Probably <clears throat> uh, when you first started out on the panel, let's talk about you and Ada. How did that feel? Maybe? How did that? Oh well. If you're asking what it is, let's keep it family friendly. <laughs> <laughs> How did Ada feel when you first Like, what was it like having a relationship with Data? Oh, he's, you know, I, Brent and I are really good friends, and we were really good friends, you know, right from the start. So, you know, we, we really, he has got a great wit and a great sense of humor. So, um, you know, we, we took we took delight and in in the fact that, that these two would would find each other and, and you know be with each other and, and who knows what would have happened had I continued on the show. Maybe they would have gotten married. You know? Oh well I mean and what do you think? He would have felt. Oh, I think he loved it. Oh yeah, Brett loves it. He loves it. We we, we joke about it all the time. Okay, let's take the next question, please. Thanks. Uh, so big fan. Uh, you're talking about some of some of your your best friends. We lovely called B movies. I'm a huge fan of a film called The Eliminators. Awesome. And I'm also a fan of a uh, film called Miracle Mile. Oh so, yeah. Thank you. Would you do me the honor just tell me some stories about either one of those films or one of those films? I love this. You're brilliant, Miracle Mile. Miracle Mile used to do amazing when I say Oh, honey. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> well, listen, Miracle Mile um, is, is just, was such a special film to do. Um, you know, the script um, was considered uh, one of the best unproduced films at that point. It had come out, AFI, the American Film Institute, would a, um, have an annual magazine. They, they, they would publish a beautiful, glossy film, uh, uh, film magazine. And with stories about different writers and, and directors, and it had made, it had just made that list. And, um, and then, of course, <laughs> it finally got produced. 
And it was so great in that Steve DeJarnet, the writer and director, really fought hard that no one would change the, the ending. You know, it, it, it ends on a you know, really tough, downbeat note. I don't know if you guys have seen Miracle Mile. It's, it's uh, you know, just really worth seeing, I think. Um, and uh, it's on Amazon. You all should see it. It's great. Yeah, it, they just, about a year ago, I went to a, a new, um, uh, they just did a new Blu-ray. Um, edition and some extras. We all went back to the diner. All the people from the diner to do yeah. kind of um, some extra sort of extras for the uh, DVD. Um, it was just a great cast, great story, and, and yes, as I was saying, Steve. You know, people along for years they wanted to make it. They wanted to change the ending. They said, you know, you can't have your movie happen, we're not making it. And finally, Hendale yep. Pictures, which made it, which of course is no longer. Um, they were they were in vanguard of indie, the indie film scene, and, and they they uh, they did it Steve's way. So it was really cool. Um, so that was Miracle Eliminators. Um, oh my God! Again, Empire Pictures. They're, they're no longer either. Those were the days when um, a guy would have an idea. Um, we've got a scientist, um, an android, a ninja, and a salty riverboat captain, and Aww. they are gonna go after a mad scientist who's gonna ruin the world. And he would have an artist draw the poster and they'd go to the film market in Milan called Mifed, and off of the poster, they would sell the idea, they would get enough investors, and they'd come back and make the movie. Those were, that's real old school filmmaking, like Roger Corman style filmmaking, that they don't, they just don't do anymore. So that's how Eliminators was, was done. They came back, they had a poster, the girl was a brunette, they had to change the poster when they cast me, and um, we made the film in Spain, and the film went like double budget, over over budget, and but it was a blast making, you know, living in Madrid and making a movie. It was so cool. Thank you so much. So my pleasure. It sounded like the formation of the Avengers. We all to get all the experience. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It was just wacky, so fun. Please. Go ahead. <laughs> Um, you know, I've heard many, or seen many skits where they joke about women over 40 in Hollywood. Um, how do you deal with that? Is it, do you find that it's worse to try to get parts? Um, you know, it's, 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 it's always a battle. You know, it's, it just is. I mean, you know, it's a tough business. And you're, you're lucky if you can, if you can do it and um, are blessed, you know, to get work and find work in it. But, you know, you look at any given project, um, many more men than, than women, um, and certainly it's a lot more parts available when you're in your 20s. Um, that being said, uh, you can't, um, 
you know, this is what you do. You're an artist, you're an actress. I've made a career of this, and um, you have to diversify, I think, is, the, is your best bet. Um, either uh, write, direct, produce, all of the above, do theater, do, do, do it all. Um, because, you know, you, you, you have to. You can't sit around and wait for things to fall on your, in your lap. You know, you have to create, you have to make, make yourself, make it happen for you, for yourself. Yes. Yes, please. Hello, you had a part in directing Trekkies, correct? Pardon? Uh, Trekkies. Trekkies? You had a part in directing it? Am I directing it? You had a part in directing it, correct? Oh, I had a um, I did not direct it, but I produced it. And I narrated it, and it was from my idea. Did, were you inspired much by Christopher Guest movies? It almost felt like a Christopher Guest production of just how crazy everything is. And as a Trekkie myself, I see it's accurate, but I just say. That's so funny. Um, I, it is kind of Yeah, I could see where you're going with Christopher Guest life. I mean, I think Galaxy Quest is, is like, you know, here's a story with Galaxy Quest. When I was screening Trekkies, I hadn't sold it yet, so I was going to festivals and I was screening it in screening rooms, you know, whoever I could get to watch it. The one thing I held out when I made Trekkies was I wouldn't give someone a DVD to watch it. Because I knew this is how, you know, they'd watch five minutes and go, oh, okay, I got it, and they'd eject it, and that's not a way, the way to see a movie. So I would do a screening, and a friend of mine was working for the production company that was making Galaxy Quest. So she asked if the writers could come to a screening of Trekkies because they had never been to a convention. And they were hired to do a rewrite on Galaxy Quest. So I said, so the two writers, these two guys, came to one of the screenings I had of Trekkies. And so when Tim Allen, the first day of filming, gave all of the cast members a copy of Trekkies and said, watch this and you'll figure out how to do this movie. So I was very flattered, very honored, because I love Galaxy Quest. Oh my god, I think they, I think it's exact. And Justin Long plays, you know, that young kid in, and that's like my kid Gabriel in, in Trekkies. I think it was sort of an homage to him. Thank you. That's so true. Galaxy Quest is the best Star Trek movie. One of the best Star Trek movies. Besides Trekkies. Yeah. <laughs> Trekkies is the best Star Trek movie. That's amazing to learn that you're the way responsible for this loving homage to, to Star Trek. For you to go from thinking, well, I'm done with this after one year or two, coming back to the series to creating a documentary series about the show, and then aspiring that, could you ever imagine that? No, I mean, that's why, that's why you just, no doors should be closed, you know? And, and one thing I've learned is never say never. You know, I mean, I died. Okay, end of story. 
not. <laughs> it just keeps going. And I, I mean, I'm sitting here now, I don't know where this is going. <coughs> I could, you know, get a call next week. And, you know, I'm back in my Romulan suit, for all I know, you know? Or, I mean, anything can happen. Actually, um, I, I want to try, I have an idea for a third Trekkies. Okay. My third and final part of the trilogy. And we have a we have a master plan how we're going to go about um, you know doing it. And I had to wait till 2019 because um, the rights to the film uh, fall back to me. So I needed that leverage. See, <laughs> I need the leverage to go back to Paramount and say. Uh, I we'd like. I think you guys should renew your rights to this. You know, it's part of your franchise, your biggest franchise. You don't want to. You know, I almost sold Trekkies to Universal, and I literally had. I had on a conference call my lawyer, Universal, and Paramount, and. Universal was meeting all my demands, even though I had offered it to Paramount first, and they were just not taking up on me. But Universal, what I found out, was angry with Paramount. So they wanted to get anything th that Paramount had to just stick it to them. You know? <laughs> but eventually, you know, Paramount was the right um, choice to do. You know, you want to keep that's their that's their baby. So hopefully, part of my deal for them to have Trekkies, they will allow me to make a third documentary. So that's that's the master plan right now. Well, there's no better way to end the discussion of Star Trek than looking forward to the future. So everyone, please a big round of applause. Thank you for listening to the Mobcast Network.